Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes. I'm John Connolly, The Spectator's News Editor. Coming up today... Boris Johnson managed to survive a confidence vote this week. He should technically be safe for another year. But James Forsyth says the plots against him are going to keep coming. James will discuss the PM's fate with Sir Anthony Seldon. Owen Matthews writes in this week's magazine that Vladimir Putin is weaponizing starvation in Ukraine. Aidan Hartley, meanwhile, says that bad governance is to blame for grain soldiers in Africa. They'll both join to discuss the Russian grain blockade. A new migrant accommodation is being built in Stafford, where I live. But is it a good idea to house 500 asylum seekers on the outskirts of a small West Midlands town? I'll speak to Enver Solomon. You may have seen a poll last week saying that Swedish people were the least likely in Europe to offer food to guests who come to visit. But are the Swedes being unfairly maligned? Lisa Björwald will be on the show to defend Swedish hospitality. And finally, sports journalist Neil Clark writes in this week's magazine about the danger and glory of the Isle of Man TT. He'll join the show. Before we get going, why not subscribe to The Spectator? You can get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. We'll also give you a free £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. And why not subscribe to our YouTube channel as well? Click the red subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. On Monday, 148 Tory MPs voted to oust Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party, with 211 in support. But is the worst yet to come for Boris Johnson? James Sykes writes in this week's cover piece that the 1922 committee, which sets the rules, might allow another vote on Boris Johnson in the next few months. To explain, James Forsyth joins me with Sir Anthony Seldon, who's written biographies of the last six prime ministers. James, Anthony, thank you for joining us. Now, James, start us off. Boris Johnson's faced the no-confidence vote this week. He won that. He technically should be saved for another year. Yet you write in this week's cover piece that there are more challenges coming, there are plots going on. Can you um, tell us a bit about that to get us started? So the Tory party knows it has a problem with plotting. That's why it's put these rules in place that make it very hard to remove a a leader. But the point about these rules is the bar on another confidence vote for a year, you know, that can be changed by the executive of the 1922 committee at at any point it chooses to. And whilst I don't think it's going to change those rules after these by-elections coming up later this month or anything like that, I think if uh, in a few months' time Boris Johnson's political position has continued to deteriorate, if he's being criticised by the Privileges Committee, then I think there is a real possibility that they, they will change the rules. After all, the 1922 Committee answers to the Tory backbenches, uh, which voted against Boris Johnson on Monday night. Mm. Anthony, how long do you think the PM can sort of keep going here? I mean, he said his win this week was, um, was convincing. Do you think that's right? Well, I I agree with James uh, rather boringly, uh, but I completely do. I think that is uh, right. Uh, Myself, I don't think he will still be there in the spring, but I don't think we can say at the moment exactly when he will go. We can say what um, and how he will go. And uh, there are three ways he can go. I think the one that people are getting wrong at the moment is falling on his sword. Uh, and I'd give that about a 20-25% chance. He may simply just feel that this is so damaging his legacy uh, as Prime Minister that he will go and uh, try and claim some high ground uh, doing it. I was with someone 
uh, the other day who told me that uh, uh, that was exactly what he had uh, 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 told him that he would do. I mean, of course, that's Boris and he will uh, cast flies over people. So I give that about a 20-25% chance, 20-25% chance somebody in cabinet, I mean, three people in cabinet on their own could do for him, and that's uh, Rishi, who might, uh, Rab, actually, who who might, uh, might uh, more likely than we uh, think he might, uh, and Gove, who won't, uh, uh, because having knifed uh, 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 Boris once before and and having uh, knifed Cameron, he's not going to... Um, get rid of uh, a, you know, a, a third person. And, and the, the other way, and I completely agree with James about this, is the 1922 committee. And as was clear when writing the book uh, with Raymond Newell on uh, Theresa May, they will make up their own minds, the 1922 committee. Uh, Graham Brady is extremely independent-minded, as James said in his column this week. They have a very shrewd, he has a very shrewd sense of the the feeling amongst the parliamentary party. And if uh, this, uh, the, the turbulence carries on, if the constituents keep on saying uh, this is going to be a terrible thing, uh, for them and that they are going to fall apart at the general election. That's all that Tory MPs care about is getting re-elected. Uh, then very quickly they'll meet together. They met together uh, and got rid of Theresa May um, by threatening to change uh, the rules. They had this secret ballot um, and put the result in envelopes and uh, Graham Brady then went to Theresa May and said, um, if you don't uh, do what uh, we want, uh, w- we will uh, get this out into the open. So uh, I think 60% likely uh, that the way of falling, and we simply don't know when it's going to happen. I, I think I just add as a final caveat, I can't think of another prime minister of the 55 uh, prime ministers who is quite like Boris Johnson and not the least uh, being able just to uh, pull rabbits out of a hat, but it's going to have to be uh, a pretty deep uh, hat and a pretty extraordinary rabbit, but he is a phenomenon. He has qualities that very few of those other prime ministers uh, have, have had. So who knows? It's going to be exciting. Mm. I mean, James, you say it sort of seems there's going to be like a tipping point with the 1922 committee. Do you think that point could be the two by-elections we've got coming up? I think those two by-elections are too soon. I think one thing that is one cabinet loyalist said to me last week, so before we knew that the confidence vote was going to take place this week, but they thought Boris Johnson's moment of maximum vulnerability was the Monday after those two by-elections. And if a confidence ballot had been called then, Boris Johnson could have been in real trouble. But because this uh, uprising was organic rather than organised, uh, it took place before the by-elections and they fell 32 votes short. I think looking at that result, if they had waited until after these by-elections, they might well have got the numbers. But I, I don't think you can have a system where you choose to have another vote just two weeks later. That, that would be too soon. So I think you have to look at other potential flashpoints. I mean, there is the broader political situation. And then there is, there is obviously this whole issue of the Privileges Committee investigation into, into his statements to the Commons, which I think, which I think has the, the... Which could, people say, oh, but that is a reason when that concludes to allow another ballot to let Tory MPs reflect on its findings. And Anthony, sort of taking a step back slightly, um, there are historical precedents for this kind of thing, for these kind of challenges. A lot of people are saying that means Boris Johnson, you know, being forced out is inevitable. Do you agree with that? And can you sort of look at a bit of the 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 historical precedents there? Well, 
we can obviously push that historical precedent too much, but I think there are three relevant ones and they all point to, is there a viable successor around a party might not like them very much, but at least around whom they can coalesce, who uh, will stand a better chance than the incumbent of uh, doing well in the general election and avoiding a civil war. Now, with Thatcher, there was a credible alternative. He didn't win, and that was Heseltine. Uh, with John Major in 1995, there wasn't a credible alternative. It was John Redwood, and he did extremely well. And with Theresa May, there was a highly credible alternative when Boris Johnson uh, decided to emerge in the course of 2019. So uh, I think moments I completely agree about the the by elections already been priced in. It's you know it's going to be a total fiasco, uh, and people have accepted that. And then if it's not such a bad fiasco, it will look as a you know be billed as a triumph. Um, and you can't possibly have one until the the long summer. Um, I think things will get difficult when people start coming back at the end of the summer, and and that is a moment of real peril. If by then there is a clear successor, maybe broken ranks, resigned from cabinet. Uh, or maybe Jeremy Hunt, who uh, comes up very openly uh, uh, and with significant uh, backers. Uh, I think uh, that, that everyone's very keen to avoid, and, and who can blame them, uh, a bloody civil war, the kind of uh, uh, Nadine Doris uh, attacks on Jeremy Hunt uh, to the power of 100. Um, I mean, that's going to significantly damage the party, even against Keir Starmer in a general election. So I think uh, if the turbulence carries on, if if the members in the country, the voters, are still very anti-Boris um, Johnson, but pro the party, but anti-Boris Johnson, and if a clear successor emerges, then I think uh, that's going to be extremely difficult. And I don't think number 10, even if they get organised this time, will have the capability. But I'm just going to mention the proviso. We never quite know what Boris Johnson will pull out next. I mean, he has had the worst epidemic. He He reacts very well to events. He's had Brexit. He's had... Uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it might need a meteor hurtling towards Earth uh, to, to, to get Boris Johnson reminding us of why we need to have his style of leadership. Short of that, not certain there is much. And James, it doesn't seem like the opposition to Boris Johnson has been particularly organised at this stage. Do you think that's going to change as the sort of weeks and months go on? I mean, there is a difficulty in that changing because the opposition to Boris Johnson comes from all sorts of different wings of the party and all sorts of different intakes. I I think the individual groups that are opposed to Boris Johnson will become more organised in in their actions. But I don't think you will see that much coordination between those groups because uh, they... um, they can't agree on who they would like to succeed Boris Johnson. So I, still, I don't think you're going to see all 148 Tory MPs who voted against him kind of acting as a collective group. I think you'll see individual groups become more organised. But I think this will, I think this will remain uh, uncoordinated because uh, it encompasses so many different parts of the Tory party, which obviously means that the, the, the plot can't have, plotters can't have strategic patience, which they should have demonstrated this week. But it also does make it more difficult for number 10 because, you know, if it was just one centrally organised plot, you could, you could hope to disrupt that. It's much harder to disrupt a whole series of things, which is what it's trying to deal with at the moment. Yeah, and, and it's a good point. I mean, Anthony, uh, what would your advice be for Boris Johnson now? Or do, or do you think he's in a bit of an impossible position? 
I, I do. I think he's been a much better prime minister than many people thought, including many of his uh, critics. He has delivered that extraordinary general election victory, the highest since Thatcher. He did uh, pretty well overall on COVID. He did de deliver on Brexit after uh, three entire years of, of bitter uh, divide. He has delineated a, a levelling up strategy, even if he hasn't uh, filled it in. He has uh, produced extraordinarily low uh, un unemployment. Um, and that to, to carry on, what can he possibly achieve? Not since 1832 as one party won a fifth general election in a, in a row. Even with Boris Johnson's magical skills, it's going to be a pretty tall schlep. Why on earth would he want to carry on uh, and have more of this humiliation? Why wouldn't he want to take the dignified path of saying, look, I got it wrong. Uh, I'm now dividing the party. I love, uh, we need to get this sorted out uh, clinically and quickly. And I'm going to fall on my sword. Yeah. And James, uh, as a last point there, do you think there's any hope that Boris Johnson can, can cling on there? Look, I, I was talking to one cabinet minister about this on Monday as the voting was taking place. And it, I said, oh, look, you know, whenever you, you have a confidence vote in a Tory leader, it, it, it tends to be the beginning of the end because because the threshold to call a confidence vote is so high at 15 percent of the parliamentary party. As soon as the vote is happening, that that begins to, 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 to be begin the process of, of ending a leadership. And it then becomes a question of when, not if. And this cabinet is replying saying, ah, oh, yes, but, but he has that kind of Ian Botham-like quality of that he can turn things around from unexpected situations. And so I think with Boris Johnson, you can't rule anything out. What I think you can say is that any leader who has had 41% uh, of their parliamentary party vote against them is in an extremely vulnerable position, whatever the rules say. Uh, and I think, I think the other problem for him is that it is very hard to see where the good news is coming from. We're, we're about to enter into a very difficult economic period. And it is hard to see where the relief comes from for this government. What, what is the thing that enables Boris Johnson to turn the corner? That, I think, is the difficulty for him. Brilliant. Thank you, James. And thank you, Anthony. Vladimir Putin is using starvation as a weapon of war. Spectator contributor Owen Matthews writes this in this week's magazine. The Russian leader, he says... He's restricting the world's access to Ukrainian grain, pushing up prices and making the poorest suffer. Meanwhile, Aidan Hartley, The Spectator's wildlife columnist, says that in Africa, Putin isn't the problem. Poor leadership is. To discuss, Owen and Aidan, join me now. Owen and Aidan, thank you for joining us. Now, Owen, you write this week that Putin is weaponizing starvation in Ukraine. Can you um, tell us a little bit about that and explain the current situation there with regards to sort of food and blockades? Well, um, it was very clear right from the beginning. In fact, it was one of the earliest indicators that Russia was serious about a war in Ukraine because of its naval mobilization. And that actually sort of kicked in very early on in the year. Uh, the Russian Navy mobilized as many troop, as many uh, warships as it could to the Black Sea. And um, the idea was to economically strangle Ukraine and uh, we presume to uh, uh, support some kind of seaborne assault on Odessa. Uh, we can't know their minds, but it seems that that was what they were preparing for. Uh, the upshot has, uh, of that has been um, that, uh, thanks in large part to three particular attacks right in the first 24 hours on the, of the war on international non-Ukrainian flagged ships in the Black Sea, that the, you, that the Russians clearly intended to 
uh, strangle Ukraine economically. And the uh, result of that um, is that a gigantic amount of, uh, of grain, 22 million tonnes of grain and other foods, are stuck in Ukrainian ports. Um, now, the Ukrainians claim that that amounts to uh, a deliberate Russian policy of starving the world and starving Africa. And I know that, you, that Aiden actually has uh, 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 written very convincingly that actually there are other reasons why Africa specifically is experiencing food shortages. But regardless of the African situation, which we'll debate in a second, it is certainly true that large swathes of the Middle East, and particularly the Levant, are very heavily dependent on Ukrainian grain. And already we're seeing significant price spikes across the world in food. And according to the Ukrainians, that's a deliberate weapon of war that's being used by Putin. Putin himself has actually denied it. He's saying, we're not blockading Ukrainian ports. We have no problem with Ukraine exporting food. It's the Ukrainian mines that are the issue. But de facto, what we have is a war that is stopping one of the world's sixth largest grain exporter in the world, Ukraine, in getting its food to international markets. And Aidan, what's your view on that? I mean, is, is the Ukraine conflict going to affect sort of food security in Africa at all? Or are you saying it's, it's not very much? I thought Owen's piece was very good, and I don't disagree with anything that he says. Um, I, and I don't disagree that Putin's actions in Ukraine uh, are not driving prices up for cereals, particularly uh, wheat and, uh, and maize. Um, but, you know, there are several factors here um, that um, mean specifically for Africa, uh, the humanitarian food situation is, is not that stressed because agencies like the United Nations can access food even when there are export bans like there are in Indonesia for palm oil and India for wheat. Um, and although prices are higher, they're able to uh, reach those populations that are in need. Um, definitely prices have, have gone up across Africa and for those countries like Egypt and Sudan that are quite dependent on, on wheat imports, especially from uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, there are, there are going to be hardships. But in my piece, I address specifically the situation in Africa when it comes to starvation. I mean, what's, what I've been told is that uh, there are 13 routes out of Ukraine by road, by railway, and also down the Danube. And although the capacity uh, isn't there to match the ports, the seven ports out of Ukraine, um, there are other factors involved, like uh, convoys being held up at the European Union borders for up to a week because of health checks and so on. And I think that, you know, there are challenges, just like there are in oil and gas supplies to Europe that need to be addressed and people need to build capacity to be able to take uh, 22 million tonnes of grain out of Ukraine before the winter wheat harvests begin in July. And one senses that, you know, wheat prices are so high that um, that, that uh, transporters and farmers are going to somehow manage to, you know, take a quite large chunk of that out. Um, and so I sort of feel that the market is going to correct itself. Do you agree with that, Owen, or do you think there's sort of be too many bottlenecks of um, getting grain out, not via the sea? Well, I mean, in, in this question, just like, like so many other um, uh, 
issues on the Ukraine war, um, where we're sort of back to World War One sort of metrics, you know, from from you know trenches and artillery duels, but actually also, but you know, railways. You know, the, 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 there's actually a tremendously significant problem with railways, and that is that Russia famously is on a different gauge to Eastern Europe. And currently, the uh, the Poles and the Ukrainians are uh, building literal parallel tracks. In other words, Ukrainian gauge tracks going into Poland and Polish gauge tracks going into into Ukraine. But obviously, those kind of infrastructure projects are going to take quite a quite a long time. So, so the the, the one of the major bottlenecks is that literally, physically, Russia uh, Ukrainian grain has to be unloaded and reloaded at the border. Uh, which is uh, a, a, a tremendous logistical problem, and um, the the by according to the Ukrainians themselves, um, their their agriculture minister said uh, this uh, this week that they they can maybe push to export two million tons uh, by rail and road, but you know that's obviously in ten percent of 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 the potential they could export by. Um, uh, by sea, the, the 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 real crunch and the question is going to become um, what's going to happen with the Russians and uh, Mariupol. So the Russians claim that they are going to get the port of Mariupol up and running, and in fact they already said they they've done that. So what happens with you with Russians selling Ukrainian grain from Mariupol to international traders? And that's actually the kind of moral question that the, the, the kind of moral spanner that the Russians love throwing in the works, because it's divisive. Like, do we maintain our moral superiority and refuse to buy this Ukrainian grain? Not sure who it belongs to. But it's been captured by the Russians, off- offloaded into international ships with the Russian guarantees of their security and let Africa starve. Or do we stick to our principles? I mean, and, and that's going to be a debate because, in fact, uh, ironically, the major exporters very shortly of Ukrainian grain are going to be the Russians. Last week, the uh, chairman of the African Union, uh, Maki Sal, went to Sochi to meet uh, Putin and described uh, African countries as uh, the victims of the Ukraine war. Um, and And it appears that in the wake of that meeting, um, quite a lot of that grain, Owen, might be uh, uh, possibly on its way to Africa. So perhaps some side deals were made. Um, I mean, feeding into this uh, crisis about uh, uh, grain supplies in the world is uh, an alert about um, uh, a drop in harvests due to drought in different parts of uh, wheat-growing areas. Um, I mean, there are going to be bumper harvests in Australia, but apparently America will be down. But, you know, we're, there's still a lot of food in the world, a lot of grain. Um, in my piece, I talk about the situation in Africa where a, a drought um, is compounded by appalling conflicts across the Sahel and the Horn of Africa have driven um, large numbers of people uh, to the brink of starvation. And, um, and all of the aid agencies are, are now starting to... Uh, uh, say that unless food is delivered uh, uh, quite soon, then people will begin to die. And, uh, and they, they believe that the Ukraine conflict is compounding that situation. Um, but, but in fact, there are, you know, these longer term reasons why uh, there are problems with food supply in the Middle East and, and in Africa. And, and a lot of it has to do uh, not with climate change, 
um, and not with uh, a drought even, but conflict and appalling government policy and um, corruption and the reasons that uh, uh, bring famine up as a, as a topic on an almost annual basis when you hear NGOs like uh, Oxfam saying that it's the worst famine for 40 years, again and again and again uh, every year. But, um, you know, as we know, you mention uh, uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis. Um, you know, this is a problem that goes back over 3,000 years, um, you know, seven uh, uh, fat years and seven lean years. Um, people need to prepare uh, for these events, and um, they just don't seem to uh, have been able to do that. Owen, do you, do you get the sense that it's sort of being played slightly for PR reasons on both sides when it comes to Russia and Ukraine on the grain issue, or is that an unfair characterization? No, um, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the one thing the Ukrainians have been superlative at is um, sort of mission discipline, sort of message discipline, and at their PR. So, in fact, it is tremendously emotive. Um, thing to claim that Russia is starving the world. It's another thing to throw at the Russians. Um, technically speaking, in fact, the Russians are correct insofar as the R Ukrainians themselves have confirmed the real technical logistical problem of getting grain out of Odessa is the mines. The Ukrainians themselves say it's going to take six months to clear the sea mines on the sea roads into Odessa. Um, true or not, the Russians claim that they've actually demined the approaches to Mariupol um, in less than less than two months. Although the Azov Sea is actually much shallower than the Black Sea, etc. I mean, there are technical issues. But the Ukrainian mines are actually, if the Russians were to agree tomorrow to lift the blockade and everything was hunky-dory, they actually couldn't do it because of their own mines. So in a sense, the Ukrainians are, uh, are, are milking this uh, for propaganda purposes, it's true. But also, it doesn't mean that it's not the case that the Russian invasion has caused them to not be able to export the grain. Both things are true. They're very good at PR, but actually, they have mined their, their imports. On the other hand, they uh, it is the Russians that have caused the situation. And uh, because of the mining, the Russians are not, in in, in fact, the ones that could resolve this immediately. The Ukrainians now have to spend a long time actually demining their ports. Uh, and thank you. And, and, and finally, Aidan, do, do you think it kind of suits the West as well to kind of pin all the blame on, on famine on Russia at the moment? Are they sort of shifting blame slightly? I, I think that um, the uh, uh, the bodies that are making uh, most noise about famine in Africa are uh, African leaders, such as the uh, uh, chairman of the African Union um, meeting Putin last week. Um, and I, I think a crisis like this is an opportunity to once again review um, policy and governance in Africa and try to get uh, uh, rulers to be more um, accountable and to introduce... Uh, better policies that uh, involve, you know, tapping into the fact that Africa has 60% of the world's arable land, but most of it undeveloped. Um, you know, the incentives for local farmers across Africa uh, have been so low that um, 
Global supply chains have just made it easier to dump the production of Nebraska on the Horn of Africa every year uh, with subsidized wheat from North America. Um, and so I think that's where you start. Um, but uh, yes, I think that uh, aid agencies, Western governments are, as Ern says about the Ukrainians, milking it for all it's worth. Um, that's not to say that the prices are not causing a lot of distress across uh, poor areas of the Middle East and Africa. Um, but um, the fact is that uh, uh, the, the, the same thing happened during COVID when you know, suddenly the world seemed to have been caught with its pants down because it had been relying so completely on China for all of its supply chains. And, and now we find that, you know, the system to deliver food around the world, particularly to the poor, is so fragile um, that, you know, there is, there is no uh, store to uh, uh, protect people for the next year or so. Um, and so, you know, we are on the brink of, uh, of, of crisis. Thank you, Aidan, and thank you, Owen. And I'm in the magazine this week writing about a new migrant accommodation centre which is opening up in my town of Stafford in the West Midlands. I write in the magazine that, for all its joys, Stafford maybe isn't the best place to put 500 migrants. There's not much to do there. There's not much in the way of hospitality or entertainment. I look a bit at the local backlash and then I also look at the Home Office policies that have led to lots of these accommodation centres being opened up in unsuitable places. And I'm very glad to have Enver Solomon, CEO of Refugee Council, join me to discuss. Thank you, Enver, for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, before we get into the specifics, I think it's probably very difficult to have this conversation if you don't kind of understand a bit of the general background about the asylum processing application process going on at the moment. Um, I mean, when I was looking into this, I was amazed at how big the sort of backlog is at this stage. So maybe, Ember, could you start us off by sort of giving us a bit of background about that and kind of the impact it's having sort of wider? Well, the, the backlog is, is really quite astonishing. We've got over 100,000 people uh, as of this moment in time waiting for a decision on their asylum claim. We've got well over 70,000 waiting more than six months and we've got indeed, you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands waiting even over a year and, and some waiting five years or even longer than five years. Now, this isn't a system which is orderly, efficient and effective. This is a system which is deeply chaotic, incredibly expensive and just not functioning well at all. And it has a huge cost, human cost on individuals' lives. You know, we work with people that have come here who have gone through extremely traumatic experiences, are often in recovery mode, and they're left languishing in limbo for weeks, months, years on end, not being given information about what's happening to their case, not able to work, living on less than £6 a day, limited access to health care, to support, sometimes with you know, really serious health conditions, and it causes them huge distress and anxiety, even to the extent that we've seen people self-harm and in some of the worst cases resort to attempting suicide. I mean, it's absolutely dire. I mean, as a result of this, we've sort of seen accommodation fill up. We've got, I think, around 30,000, 37,000 people um, being put up in hotels and hostels rather than proper accommodation. Um, 
all the accommodation seems to basically be at breaking point. Everyone is absolutely full. So that's kind of where my piece comes into a bit, I guess, which is the Home Office seems to be sort of scrambling around a bit. Um, it's trying to open new accommodations up, which is how we've sort of ended up with Stafford Court in my town. So I think it's around 500 asylum seekers going to be sort of plonked on the edge of town. I mean, in my view, I write about this in the piece a bit. It's sort of, I'm sort of making the point that Stafford isn't maybe the best place for these people in that it's kind of a bit in the middle of nowhere. It's I like living there very much. Um, it's got a lot going for it, but it's also very quiet. There's only a few shops, bits of entertainment, that kind of thing. And the site itself is outside of town. I mean, I'm interested in your view. Do you think that's a bit unfair? Do you think maybe these kind of schemes can work in a place like Stafford? Or, or do you think I've got that right? I think it is unfair. And, and you know, I think it, be, it becomes and is now crisis management. And in that crisis management, the Home Office loses what is probably the most important message from the whole Windrush saga and the conclusions of Wendy Williams, who produced a very important report into the lessons learned of Windrush, which is that the Home Office should always see the face behind the case. And when you have this crisis management and having to scramble around, as you say, to find accommodation, like's happened in your in your hometown, then the Home Office loses sight of the face behind the case. It loses sight of the human being, of who they are, their needs, their requirements, the fact that they're highly traumatised, the fact that they're plonked in location with no support, with no access to services and having to just get on with it and do the best they can. Now, I know some people might therefore think, well, you know, at least they've got accommodation, at least they've got a roof over their head, at least the state's doing something for them. But, you know, I would say to anyone who was watching this, imagine if it was you and, you know, remind yourself of the scenes that we've seen of Ukrainians fleeing for their lives, having to make treacherous, dangerous journeys, highly traumatised and having to put their lives back together while simply plonking someone anywhere with any kind of roof over their head frankly is not good enough and does not show compassion and does not reflect the the importance of always seeing the face behind the case yeah i think i agree i think that sort of lack of thought definitely comes through with it i mean the site itself i mean turning away from just whether stafford is big enough to support this and 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 that kind of local concern i mean seems quite unsuitable to me i mean it's a former student accommodation It'll be broken up into little blocks where everyone's sort of sharing about, I think it's about five people to a kitchen, often sharing a bathroom. Do you think that's kind of a common thing going on at the moment? And, and is that quite bad or, or what's your view on that? Well, we work in a lot of hotels supporting people who are in the asylum system. And, you know, we've found that the accommodation invariably is, is pretty basic. You know, it's of a simple standard. And we've seen situations where people have kind of mobility issues and they're put on higher floors with no lifts. We've seen situations where people have underlying kidney problems and they're not able to to, to access to, to basically have sufficient drinking water. You know, we've also seen situations where people have particularly dietary needs because of their health conditions and they're not able to eat sufficient food. So they suffer, you know, significant weight loss. I mean, this tells a story of of people being put in accommodation which doesn't meet their needs, which causes them significant suffering and human distress. And really, we should be able to do better than that. We should be able to offer a basic standard which 
does demonstrate compassion, which does pe meet people's needs. What's really interesting, and we've been looking into this, is that when one of the housing providers, like in, in the case that you've looked into, Serco, actually has to find accommodation, they have to do what is called a compliance check. And that compliance check is pretty basic. It's about basic health and safety. So, for example, are there locks on the door? Are there batteries in the alarms and in the fire alarms and so forth? Now, that compliance check, I've been told by one of the housing providers, frankly, doesn't look at any of the needs assessments of the people that are in this accommodation, like those in Stafford and, and in hotels. And in their view, isn't good enough because it's important to remember that people are in this accommodation for months on end. And if you're there for months on end, crammed into hotel accommodation or crammed into the accommodation that you've been writing about, then a simple compliance check isn't good enough. It should be looking at things like access to services, to the local community, to other support that any individual will need. Because, you know, imagine if if one had to be in a cramped hotel room, and we're also talking about families here in hotels rooms for months on end, not just single males, it would be enough to drive anyone to, to, to more than distraction, but to deep despair. I think that definitely comes through. I mean, I, I was looking a lot at sort of Circo submissions to the council, and it is obviously they're submitting it with a very particular audience in mind there, but it's interesting how much of it is concerned with basically really basic things of just like, oh, will it increase traffic in the area? Um, you know, will it add strain to local services? And you start to think, well, maybe that's a small factor, but obviously this used to be student accommodation, so that's not going to be a, make a huge impact. But is you know, you're dealing with a, a group of residents here. Many will have pretty bad mental health issues. They'll be sort of fleeing war zones. They might have trauma. There's also the added complication that will be coming from nationalities all over the world. Some of those won't get on. Even internally, you know, there'll be personality clashes or there'll be clashes with people inside your own country. And it just does seem at the moment like there's it's kind of no thought is put into that. It's all very much on the hoof. I mean, do you get that impression as well? I do. I mean, I think, as I say, the Home Office is in, is in crisis mode. It's been in crisis mode for a long time. And actually, the Chief Inspector of borders uh was speaking in parliament just yesterday and he and he said this himself he said the home office is having to deal with crisis after crisis and therefore is unable to operate a system which meets the needs of those that, that are that are there and, and let's remember you know men women and children who as you say are highly traumatized will be experiencing things like post-traumatic stress disorder flashbacks all kinds of anxieties um, and are left, you know, their their mobile phones are taken off them when they arrive, so they have no means of communicating with people initially. They arrive with sometimes just flip-flops. You know, I've met met young adults who've arrived here with simply flip-flops and, and a T-shirt and a pair of trousers. They don't have anything. They don't have toiletries. Um, so, you know, we need to treat them with dignity and human compassion, and I don't think because the system is in crisis mode, it is able to do that. And I'd be interested to hear your view, Anva. I mean, it's been a bit of a concern of this magazine, and I mentioned it a bit in my piece, um, about this Home Office policy, which says that if you're claiming asylum, you can't work. And I think the idea from the Home Office's point of view is that they don't want sort of people coming over and using it to like make a load of money and then be kicked out and send it home and, that, and sort of for the system to be taken advantage of. But I guess the point we're making is that 
if you want, if people are here already and you want them to sort of integrate a bit into the local community and support themselves it's, and sort of keep them active and busy as well, offering work is, is a good thing for that. I mean, is that your view as well? Or do you think because of the relatively small time, maybe smaller times because we're looking at that it's, that it's not a, such a huge thing? No, it's absolutely my view that we should be allowing people to work. I mean, you know, let's remember that the latest Home Office data shows that three quarters of people are found to have a well-founded fear of persecution and therefore allowed to stay in the UK as refugees and go on to settle in this country as British citizens. So if that's the case, why don't we allow them to work from from the, the moment they arrive, enable them to earn their own money so the state so we don't have to spend money on supporting them allow them to be economically independent because if they if if the vast majority of three quarters are going to be allowed to stay in the uk anyway then we should be supporting them to 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 be independent to allow them to work and you know this happens in most other countries Many countries allow people in the asylum system to work. Sometimes there's a limit of three months or six months until they can do so. But, you know, I've spoken to senior conservative politicians who agree with this. You know, they think it's absolutely ludicrous that the Treasury is having to spend money, the Home Office having to spend large amounts of money on people who could be economically self-sufficient because people who come here are often incredibly hardworking, incredibly motivated. They go on to run businesses to contribute to the UK once they're allowed to stay in the UK and to to be hardworking taxpayers that play by the rules. So allowing people to work, to me, is an obvious thing to do, especially when there's already skill shortages. Mm. And turning slightly, so we've discussed a lot about sort of the experience from the refugees side. you know, I mentioned this in the piece that there's a lot, quite a lot of local backlash to the scheme in Stafford. Residents are pretty annoyed. They're kind of, their concerns are a lot about it. I think some of it is to do with control as well, because this is sort of just announced unilaterally. It sounds like the council doesn't have much capacity to, to disprove it. But then also there's a lot of concern about strain on local services, um, safeguarding issues and so on. I mean, do you think those, those you know, concerns are fair? And, and do you think sort of the Home Office and these sort of companies don't manage the sort of local communities well at the moment? Or is there there more they can do, perhaps? There's definitely more that the Home Office can do. You know, I understand why local communities have these concerns. You know, know, it, it, it makes sense. Suddenly something is being landed on them. There's been no consultation, no prior preparation. And understandably, they have lots of questions and and concerns. The fundamental problem here is that the Home Office is not working well with local councils. You know, we've seen this consistently in relation to all matters concerning refugees. So when there was the rapid evacuation of people out of Afghanistan almost a year ago, uh, the Home Office did no pre-planning with local authorities, with councils across the country, They stood up hotels at last minute. They didn't even tell councils that they were doing that. And councils were finding out after Afghan families with large numbers of children were being placed in in inappropriate hotel accommodation. Often, you know, we came across cases of hotels by very busy main roads, clear safeguarding issues for the children. The councils didn't know about it. And this creates a situation where councils and the Home Office are at loggerheads. They're not working in, in conjunction. There's not collaboration. There's not proper planning. And you have this very adversarial system, which I don't think uh, creates a mechanism for local communities to then 
be in a position where they can understand and make sense of what of what happens. Mm. And I think we should mention, because I'm not sure we mentioned right at the beginning, actually, but we talked about the processing backlog there. And to, in some respects, it has been increased by, the, uh, by an increase in channel crossings, but it kind of goes back much further than that. And I think since sort of 2018, it's rocketed. So it's pre-COVID, it's pre an increase in channel crossings, and it does seem to be the Home Office's fault for this. I mean, I can't see any other sort of rational explanation for it. Um, then do you think, so the, the, the accommodation policy at the moment is kind of based on this sort of rough formula of there should be no more than one in 200 asylum seekers in each local authority. The system seems to have been brought about because most migrants were originally claiming in London or the southeast, and it seemed unfair for them to all bunch there. So the, the idea is they're sort of dispersed across the country. It has been a bit sort of slapshot and a bit, and it's clearly like areas which are a bit cheaper that have taken the, the, the largest burden of this. Um, in my view, it doesn't seem quite fit for purpose, and we probably need a bit more of a think about which areas work best. I mean, is that your view as well, or do you, you know, do you think it needs a bit of a complete overhaul, even? It, it needs look a total overhaul. What what they've done in Ireland, interestingly, is they've they've gone back to the drawing board. They've got housing associations to come around the table to work with government and to create a system of providing accommodation for people in the community. We need to allow people to work so they can be economically self-sufficient. We need to ensure that they have access to social housing, um, like all groups that are in in need and that have particular needs. Some people will be able to work straight away, get a job and move into private rental accommodation. There's no reason why they wouldn't be able to do that. They might need a rental deposit scheme, which, and we run one of those in London, for people who do get refugee status. But we need a, a, a radical, radically different new approach here because tinkering with the system, trying to, to, to resolve a crisis through further crisis management is not going to make the situation any better. It's simply going to make the situation worse. And there's a very simple solution, allowing people to work, bringing in housing associations, social landlords. You know, the outpouring of support for people including housing providers, both private providers and social providers, vis-a-vis Ukrainians and Afghans has, has been remarkable. So, you know, I think there's a there's a willingness and a desire here, but there's a political barrier. The government, you know, wants to create a hostile environment and it will continue to do that. It will continue to create a system where there has to be crisis management because it's obsessed with ensuring that we do have a hostile environment. Brilliant. Ember, um, I could talk about this all day, but I think that's all we've got time for. So thank you very much for coming on. Are the Swedes particularly inhospitable? The online world has been swirling with horror stories about Swedish hospitality this week, with our Nordic neighbours castigated as uniquely unfriendly in Europe. The Swedish journalist Lisa Burwald has written a defence of Sweden for the Spectator website this week. She joins me now. Thank you for joining us on Spectator TV, Lisa. Now, Lisa, to start us off, Swedish hospitality has been given a bit of a beating in recent weeks. Uh, The Swedes have been accused of lots of things, of coldness, aloofness, the rest. But before we get a bit into the defence of that, um, can you tell us a bit where this sort of row or this idea has come from? Yes. Um, So it started as just a basic user conversation on the Reddit forum. Um, People were saying, like, what's the weirdest thing you've experienced from other countries, that sort of thing. And someone was saying, uh, you know that in Sweden, um, you don't feed your kids' friends. 
dinner. You just let them sit in the room. And everyone was like, what? That sounds insane. And then this has exploded into um, a global debate with even, you know, you, the spectator, uh, New York Times, I saw, I think the CNN or MSNBC was doing um, something on this story. So it is essentially pretty much a non-story from a journalistic point of view, but now it is a story. So, so I'm, you know, I'm mildly concerned with Sweden's reputation, but I'm also amused. So, so that's that's how it started. But even the premise of that is actually wrong, um, because at, if you would have followed that conversation, but this story took on a life of its own, right? Um, but the fact is that uh, even though some Swedes don't feed their friend, the kids' friends. It's actually more like the friends go home and eat with their family. Right. So the whole premise is wrong. It's more like we're not as social as Spaniards or Italians. Um, that we just say anyone can come in off the street. It's this warm climate, this loose thing. We're more reserved. You eat with your own family uh, and you rather wait. And then you go home at 5.30 when you're a kid to have dinner with your own set of parents and siblings. That's good. <laughs> um, I'm glad. I'm which glad. is strict. But not, not weird. Yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm glad children are being fed in Sweden. Um, another aspect of this is about sort of. Yeah, so you see, so it's like it's like a slight. Um, yeah, it's it's like a slight difference here in like refusing to feed other children, and um, our social kind of uh, circumstances and our social norms and rules. I mean, so another aspect of this is sort of guests come round and I think sort of Southern European countries are much more likely to feed their guests or give them food and that kind of thing. And Sweden seems to be the sort of opposite end of that. Is that kind of fair as well? Well, <laughs> it's difficult to say. I mean, if a neighbour would pop by and perhaps just wanting to borrow something from a Swede, you would absolutely tend to just lend him or her that object and a say like okay have a nice evening bye um whereas if you go to turkey or greece you're treated to like a five course meal and um you know we we swedes are we quite international people we we all study abroad we live abroad we work abroad um so we are kind of self-aware of this lack of warmth but you, but i have to blame the weather as well because you really do want a big parts of the year you just want to get get in do your stuff and then get out again whereas you don't want to hang around <laughs> um so i think that has a lot to do with it the literal warmth of the country as well as the the social warmth right i mean and i mean god this has been studied in in like academic studies for a year hasn't it so this is all um but yeah, the funny thing about this debate is it's no longer about like meatballs or your childhood. Um, it's about everything that's wrong with Swedish society. And that's why the hashtag Swedengate was created. Right. I mean, you mentioned there about warmth. I mean, is it fair to say, I mean, is it unfair to say probably that Swedes are a bit less warm as a people as well? Or, or do you think that's that's too far? Or is there sort yes. of hidden, hidden depths of warmth no, that no, we've no. not realised? <laughs> 
no, 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 we're just really cold, like all the way through. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I know this because my mother-in-law is from Singapore. And, you know, just the way you invite people, the way you bond over cooking, um, we just, we really don't have that. If, do you know the world values map? Anyone can watching this can Google it. It's about what kind of values you have. Is it family? Is it religion? What do you prioritize in life? And you will find that Sweden is such an outlier. I mean, here's like the rest of the world and you will find Sweden up there in that corner. Uh, we are super individualists. Yeah. We don't care about the church. We're, we're super secular. Uh, we don't really care about family or <laughs> these social things. We only care about self-development and career and um, individual success and prosperity. If you look at the world values map and this has something to do with it as well it's like if you don't really care to get on with um, other families or neighbors why are you going to invite them for food like so spontaneously you can send them an invite a few times a year to some formal event instead that's very i'm only, I'm only semi-joking here <laughs> yeah we, we have this we have this proof of this in, in the scientific studies Mm. So Swedes seem very comfortable as they are. I mean, what's their sort of reaction been to this sort of worldwide <laughs> condemnation now then? <laughs> are they happy about it or, or, or kind of relaxed? <laughs> well, there, I mean, there is an aspect that isn't really, I mean, in all seriousness, it's not that much to joke about. And it is that we are in a pretty um, serious time period right now since we have announced that we will be applying for NATO membership. And we have been informed by various security experts here that this is a very uncertain period. There can be all manner of like military threats, disinformation threats, propaganda, everything coming from Russia, because they are obviously incredibly vexed that um, Finland even shares a border with Russia and we're just across the Baltic Sea that we are now joining NATO. We have been famously neutral, um, although... Um, in real life, we haven't been that neutral. We've been participating in NATO uh, exercises for years, and we weren't really that neutral during the Second World War. But officially, we have been a neutral country. So obviously, everyone's been thinking, yeah, it started off as a joke, Sweden Gate, but has there been any Russian troll factories involved in creating this anti-Sweden global phenomenon, which the debate is now? And... Uh, yeah, the view here in Stockholm is that it's actually not unlikely because what these troll factories and online provocateurs do, they take an existing debate about something that's negative for a country's reputation, which they obviously want tarnished now during the sensitive NATO application period. Uh, and they just jump on it and they just get their trolls to be like, yes, look, this is bad. But also, have you looked at Swedish healthcare and what about their constitution? So growing from do we give our friends um, coffee or tea into what is wrong with Swedish society? So you can absolutely um, see that there is a likelihood of of, um, uh, of outside influence on this whole debate just seeing how much it has grown it's not really organic it's it's something that it, it wouldn't be completely unlikely if, if it has been added to the discussion you know right well to try and put a bit more of a positive spin on it i've heard it sort of suggested that one of the benefits of all the nicer side of say not feeding other people's kids at your house is that it's more about 
kind of respecting the boundaries of other families and respecting the privacy of the other families. I mean, do you buy into that as well, or do you think that's that's pushing it? <laughs> well, well, I mean, thinking back as a kid, I mean, I loved this habit. Um, I loved that I didn't have to make forced conversation and sit there like, how was school? How is your family? Um, it was like, maybe it was food you didn't like, but you had to eat it anyway. You could just stay and read comics in your friend's room it was brilliant but you also have to realize that it's i mean swedes come from so many different backgrounds social background cultural background ethnic background i'm obviously a very white person being born and raised in stockholm which is pretty uh, a, a white capital city uh, in you know and it's mainly middle class so if you would ask someone who's black and who grew up in a stockholm suburb uh they would say they didn't have this experience whatsoever that um, in their multicultural part of Swedish society, everyone came over and ate everywhere. And when, and when I visited friends who had like Persian background, for example, in the suburbs, um, there was no way you were allowed to stay in the room. I mean, you were literally dragged to the table. Like what's wrong with you eat. You have to try 500 dishes. And I would come home like shallow shock. And I was like, I was forced to socialize and eat strange objects and my mom was like oh yeah but they're not you know they're not Swedish yet so there's still hope that they could become um cold and reserved like us in a few generations <laughs> so to finish off then Lisa as a sort of final point I mean is there anything the rest of the world can learn from Swedish hospitality they've had a hard time are there any positives that you think the rest of us should sort of take away from that no, not at all. It's it's all about us Swedes learning from other cultures. It's like, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable meeting new people. I mean, if you speak to someone in Sweden at a bus stop, uh, they do think you are clinically insane uh, for just saying something like, oh, I wonder when the bus is coming. So they're like, why the hell are you chatting to me? You're a stranger. Um, so other cultures can teach us that it's it's not dangerous to be a little bit more warm, open-minded, um, try new things, and even even share a meal with someone who's not uh, a blood relation to you um, is sometimes fine. That's what we can learn. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Lisa. And finally, three people have already died in the Isle of Man at TT in this year's racing. Sports journalist Neil Clark writes in this week's magazine that despite the danger, we should celebrate the race for what it is. To explain, Neil joins me now. Thank you for joining us on Spectator TV, Neil. Now, in the magazine this week, you write about the Isle of Man at TT and the sort of the danger and the glory of it. And it's been particularly prescient this week, which has seen multiple fatalities over the week. Um, can you, first of all, before we get into that, tell us a bit about the race itself um, for viewers who aren't maybe that familiar with it and what the sort of the attraction is there? Well, the Isle of Man TT uh, dates all the way back to 1907. Uh, so, you know, it's 115 years old. It's held uh, every year on the Isle of Man, uh, apart downs. Uh, held every year since then. It's, and the mountain course, which has been described as 38 miles of terror, probably the most terrifying, the most frightening, the most difficult road racing uh, motorcycling course in the world has been used since 1911. And to give you some idea about how just how dangerous it is since that time, before this year's TT, there'd been 151 fatalities of riders in the TT, 
in the Alaman TT and on the mountain course as a whole, uh, 250. So we're talking about where uh, it is, I think there's only been two years uh, after 1938 when we didn't have any fatalities. So it shows you that every year, unfortunately, we do get at least one fatality, sometimes uh, uh, several. And sadly this year, we have had already uh, three fatalities. And uh, we've also got one rider critically injured in hospital and two seriously injured. Wow. And, and what makes it so dangerous compared to other motor races? I mean, is, is it the, the course or is it, the, is it the vehicles as well that they're using? Are they, what's going on there? Well, the mountain course, John, 38 miles of terror it's been called. Basically, you're road racing on public roads that have been there for an awful long time. Uh, you're backed by stone, but most of the time it's stone walls. You've got stone walls, you've got trees, you've got lampposts, you've got telegraph poles, and you've got houses. So if you come off, for example, at Balagheri, uh, one of the most dangerous bends there, it's a fifth gear right-handed uh, bend. Riders going into it at incredible speeds of up, you know, sometimes they, they hit 200 miles an hour. You know, if you get that wrong, you're going to end up you know, against a wall or a telegraph pole or some other obstacle or a tree. And so, uh, you know, it's the nature of the course. There's no other road racing circuit like it in the world. And if you go on that course, you, you, you know, it's, an, it's a seal on television is one thing to actually go up and see it yourself. You, you're, you're, you, you know, you're terrified yourself because, you know, if you were on that and you made just one error, then it could well be fatal. So it is the course. And of course, and, and, and it is the speeds, because if you look at the history of the TT, you know, when it first started, uh, to get 50 miles an hour, goodness me, that was a major achievement. Uh, then it went to uh, 75, 100, 150, and now they're hitting 200. So the machines have got have got incredibly, uh, are so powerful nowadays, the speeds they can hit are really uh, quite incredible too. And it's those factors allied to the, uh, the nature of the course means that even though this year, the organizers have introduced a whole raft of new safety measures, and we've still had unfortunately three fatalities so it's it's the nature of the beast really that it is it is it is the ultimate test if you're a road racer you have to do you have to do the isle of man tt mountain course to sort of prove yourself yeah i mean i was going to ask that actually i mean if the risks are so high why do you think drivers still still want to take part in it it's incredible i i felt intensely alive last week just being on the grid before the start watching the bikers getting ready to go off uh hearing the engines revving up seeing them go around on their first lap at 200 miles per hour i felt intensely alive and i was just a spectator what the guys who are actually riding are feeling well it's off the scale uh, one driver said that it you know it, it's a feeling that you hard to put into words somebody said it was like flying imagine going at 200 miles an hour on a motorbike around that circuit uh, uh it's a buzz the excitement davy morgan a, a tt veteran tragically killed only two days ago age of 52 he was thinking of retiring in 2019 then came the, the lockdowns the rest covid restrictions etc he said he lost so much from his life he felt so bored not being able to to get on his motorbike and do the tt he came back this year and he was killed he took a big risk and unfortunately didn't pay off for him but the the philosophy of the riders is this is that they take the line that you know, Elia Kazan, the famous film director, said, you've got to risk your life every six months to stay alive. They risk their life every time they go on that course. But for them, it's worth it. They calculate that the risks they take are worth it because of the tremendous buzz, the exhilaration that they get from riding that course. 
and that outweighs it. It's they make their own risk assessments. Nobody's forcing them to do it. And they take the line that, yes, there is a chance they might get killed. But against that, uh, there's a chance they will complete successfully and it's worth the risk. Brilliant. Thank you, Neil, for that fascinating discussion. Thank you. That's it for this week. Once again, why not subscribe to The Spectator magazine? You get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. We'll also give you a free £20 Amazon gift voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer to subscribe today. And don't forget to subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel as well. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week. Thank you.